So hello everybody, my name is Marike Groenewald. Um, I'm one of the facilitators at the moment moderating and facilitating our seminar on the topic of facilitation here in Gummersbach. I'm South African and from Cape Town and for the past 10 years or so I have been actively working in the realm of politics, uh, first as a permanent member of staff of the Democratic Alliance in South Africa um, but also more recently in a part-time position while running my own business um, that focuses on leadership development, uh, people development, coaching and facilitation. Thankfully, I'm not doing the seminar on my own. I'm joined by my wonderful co-facilitator. Hi, everyone. I'm Tricia Lord, and I, like Marika, live in South Africa, although I'm not from there originally, as people can probably assess from my accent. And I met Marika through her work at the Democratic Alliance, who have been one of my clients in South Africa for the last, I think it's nearly 15 years now altogether. Mm. And like Marika, have been working for several years. I think it might be 31 this year. I've lost count <laughs> in the field of developing human potential. And also like you, Marika, working in a variety of different fields, one of which includes the work we've been doing here in Gummersbach mm. on teach a combination of teaching and facilitating people around different subjects. So I'm wondering, Marika, maybe you'd like to say just a little bit more on what the overall topic and intention and purpose of this seminar that we're working on now at the moment in Gummersbach is, what it, what it is, what we've been hoping to accomplish. So this is a 12-day seminar, um, and the reason why I start with that is because I think 12 days gives you a really great chunk of time to do process work with people and um, reflecting on it now I think that's what we've been trying to do. Um, this seminar brings together uh, people who are in different roles in the foundation, some are working for political part partners like NGOs or parties around the world um, and they all in some way in their role are interested in this topic of facilitation, designing programs and events um, some of them are more on the project management side of it, while others are more on the facilitation side of it. Um, so with 12 days, we've been able to design, if you will, a type of a program journey for them mm. um, to take them through a number of topics from getting to know themselves as a facilitator, um, being exposed to different methods, um, techniques, trends that they can try out or should take note of, um, and then what's been really important for us is creating different types of experiences for them where they can um, see how things run in real life and try things out for themselves um, so that they can really get to know their own individual facilitation style. Um, so one of the things we started off with right at the beginning, 11 days ago, is this body of work called the thinking environment, in which you, Trisha, is an expert. And in fact, that's where I learned the thinking environment from. So I'm really interested to hear just a little bit more about what, what is it. Mm. Yeah. Thanks. I really loved where we positioned it in this seminar on day one mm. and as the container for the overall seminar experience. Mm. And I think it's a really great place to place the thinking environment because it speaks specifically to people's way of being. Mm. And 
I think that's one of the key distinctions that you and I have been really wanting the participants in this seminar to grasp, to have an experience of, and as you said, to try out and practice different ways of exploring the connection between the things we think about that we want to do in a seminar and the way that we are going to be as we do those things. Mm. And as you and I both know from our experience of being facilitators at the front of the room, that's actually what people experience first. Mm. In fact, when people walk into a room and sit down and begin to embody being a participant in an experience that you've designed for them, the very first thing they experience about you when you step up to the front of the room and start talking is who are you being towards them? Mm. And that lies at the heart of the thinking environment because, as you know, it's a body of work which has been developed over the last 35 years by, uh, in the first instance, a woman called Nancy Klein. And I would say specifically in the last 10 to 12 years has really been taken on and developed by a group of professionals around the world who are interested in what Nancy was talking about. And what she discovered through her research was that the thing that creates the best possible environment in which people can be themselves and think for themselves and participate as themselves and therefore bring themselves fully into the experience you've designed for them that will be shaped by how they feel they're being treated. In the first instance, by you as the facilitator, or us as the facilitators in this case. And then in the second instance, through the atmosphere, the human environment that you create between the participants themselves. So the thinking environment looks at 10 behaviours. They've become known as the 10 components of a thinking environment and how each one of those matters enormously in terms of creating this human experience for people where they can show up mm. and really participate, which is, of course, what you want as a facilitator. Mm. You want to create an environment of engagement mm. and participation. So we look at each of those behaviours individually and why they matter in terms of helping a person to think well for themselves. And then we look at the connection between the components and we've been using those in a variety of different ways to encourage participants to really listen to one another, to notice the temptation to interrupt and finish people's sentences and how unhelpful that actually is if people are grappling to get to what they think about something and reflect on something. And I, that's been really showing up for me in our group this time because we're working with people who very few, in fact, I think only one of the participants in our group has English as their mother tongue. And so as people are trying to reflect and ask questions and share back what they're getting from the experiences we've designed from them, sometimes they need to stop and pause and look for the right words to express what they're trying to say, especially because they're speaking in a language that's not their mother's tongue. And seeing the the temptation that there is in the group always for people to think that a person when they stop and pause in their thinking needs rescuing and stepping in and finishing the sentences for them. So that's just a small example of the thinking environment, but really it looks at, as I said, these 10 behaviours and how the combination of those behaviours creates an environment in which people can think for themselves. Mm -hmm. And I think especially since this is a seminar which is contained 
in the ideas and philosophy and practices of liberalism, the thinking environment is such a powerful tool for that because I think it's some of the core beliefs and ideas of liberalism are enshrined in the ten components of a thinking environment. Things like independent mm -hmm. thinking. You can't think for yourself unless you can think as yourself. Mm -hmm. So diversity is another one of the components. And really engaging with and inviting in and looking for divergence as opposed to homogeneity. Mm -hmm. Equality, for example, is another one of our components. And as we know, those of us that are interested in liberal values in the world, how hard it is to create an environment of, of equality. Mm -hmm. So I think it fits so well in what we're doing here, not just because it creates some guidelines for people as to how to participate so as to support themselves and each other to participate fully, but it really also carries into a way of being with each other the very things that we value the most mm -hmm. and that we say we stand for. Mm. What do you think? Mm. I love what you've just said because I think if you think about it, liberal events and workshops and seminars should feel different to seminars that are organized by people who are of a different ideology. Mm. Um, so what's been really interesting without, I think, making that link so explicitly is giving the participants access to a range of methods um, and ways of being that we think are aligned with what it means to be a liberal in the world that will enable them to organize events, sessions, seminars that are free and where the individual stands at the heart of what's going on. Mm -hmm. um, and I think if I think about my own experience with political events, that's the opposite of being told what to do in a, in a panel discussion or having one person in the front of the room lecturing for hours. Um, that's yeah. presumably they're not a liberal event where people are free and can move around and feel like equals. Um, so it's been really fascinating translating these values, which we often speak about in a very political context only, in terms of messaging and campaigns, into something as practical as what does that mean for when you want to create a, a space, an environment in which people are free to learn and be themselves. Mm, mm. And one of the things that's been brought home to me in this seminar because we've been hearing back from the participants that were here with us this time last year mm. is how understanding a thinking environment and knowing how to create one really stays with people mm. so I've been hearing from some of last year's participants to who've been sharing with me how they've been able to take what we've taught them in the seminar the thinking environment and some of our other models mm and theories and really put it into practice in their lives and how it stayed with them. Mm. So I think that's particularly exciting to hear. Uh, I wanted to ask you, Marika, to tell us a little bit more about moods and emotions because that was a big topic that you introduced early on mm. last week in the seminar and why that's important in terms of being a facilitator. Mm. So the moods work comes from a, a body of work called um, ontological coaching, and that's essentially just a big word for something that you've spoken about already, and that's your way of being in the world. And there's this really interesting research um, that shows that there are moods in this time, or if you want this era, this age, that we as humans find ourselves in at the moment, that's more present than other moods. 
Um, and what that means is that individuals come into our sessions or our workshops um, being in certain emotional spaces mm. and discounting them or not noticing them um, would be at our own peril as facilitators. Mm. So a mood can be described as an emotional space that you occupy over a period of time that sets you up to behave towards the future in a particular way. So you can also say then that your actions flow from the mood that you find yourself in. And I mean, it's, it's obvious if you think about it. If you're excited about something, you behave differently than to when you're feeling down or anxious or fearful about something. The same goes for people who arrive at our workshop. And in fact, the same goes for people who stand at the front of the room. Mm. So um, it's been really interesting for us to play around with this framework of moods to help participants become familiar with the moods that they may encounter, both in themselves and in the people they will guide in workshops or engage with. And to, as facilitators or as organizers, organizers of events, think about how do you connect with those moods? Um, and in some ways, how can you shift the mood if you assess the mood to be not so helpful? So if you're engaging with a room full of people who are disengaged, they may be resigned, um, they've really given up that things can be different in the future. What processes, methods um, could you use to shift it? And how would you like to be? in response to it. So how can you not get swallowed up in whatever is happening in the rest of the workshop? Um, and it, it can literally range from practical things like using music. Um, technology is another great way with which we can actually shift moods, assess them, bring them to the forefront for people. Um, and, and then it can be more complex around noticing our own moods really becoming a great observer of what's going on around us and developing practices for ourselves as a facilitator um, or an organizer to be able to engage with it in a way that doesn't draw us in. Mm. What do you think? Yes, and I, I think one of the things that really stood out for me from the Moods and Emotions session that you did in this seminar is how awareness-raising it is, because I think that's the tricky thing with moods. Mm. One of the things I remember you engaging us in a discussion around was the question, which mood do you tend to go to? Mm. What's one of your go-to moods? Mm. And I saw that the participants really resonated with that. And I love how awareness-raising it is, because as you've said, if we don't notice the mood of the group, or we don't notice our own mood, we don't have access to shifting it. The minute we're able to raise awareness around it, then we have choice. Mm. And I think that's been a big theme mm. in our seminar is raising awareness so that people can change something. They have mm. access to change. They can decide to shift mm. into a different mood mm. if they're aware of the one that they're in. I love what you've just said because I think very often facilitators or events organizers come to us and they say something like, I tried this really great method or technique and it just didn't work. And so often that is a result of you not tapping into the mood of the room. Mm -hmm. So it, it really goes back to that conversation around way of being not only of yourself but of the group um, and of the individuals in the group and noticing what's going on for them and knowing that a technique alone, so the doing part of facilitating an event, is not enough to lead you to a great result. Sometimes you have to be able, not sometimes, 
always. You have to be able to connect emotionally um, and to take people from their emotional spaces or to create a specific emotional space for them to learn or to have a specific experience. Yeah, so I think what I'd just like to stress there, um, again, is this distinction between way of doing and way of being. And what's been really important, I think, for us, Trisha, is that... um, it's not one at the expense of the other, it's both. Uh, but the easy thing often is to focus on the way of doing um, because that's, that's what we have access to. We can Google way of doing things. We can find new methods online. Um, we can try different things out. Um, and, and we're often really in that realm of learning. The way of being for me is the, the one under the surface that's a bit harder to notice, but the one that we occupy um, so that's all about becoming a great observer of yourself and of of what happens around you. So then we went to Berlin as well, right? And we only came back really late last night. Yes. <laughs> um, and I think we we put together quite an interesting experience for them in Berlin and a, a few, I would say, somewhat unusual engagements. Can you tell us a bit about that? Absolutely. We've had a fantastic time in Berlin. I've really enjoyed the variety of what we exposed our participants to whilst we were there. Before I even say anything more about that, I also really recognised this time round how important the shift in energy and venue and place and space the, the city excursion creates. If you imagine sitting in the same room for 12 days in a row how difficult it becomes for people to stay engaged because the physical environment, even though the physical environment in Gummersbach is tailored to seminars and groups getting together and working together, and Darendorf, the room that we've been in, is a fantastic room in terms of the amount of light that's available, the height of the ceilings, all of these things we know from neuroscience make a huge difference to people's capacity to be able to stay awake and stay engaged. So I really loved the fact that getting on the train and going to Berlin created this shift in mood and energy in the group. And then whilst we were there, we were we actually had five different facilitated types of experience for the group. The first one was Daniel and who comes from the world of acting and who took the group through a series of experiential exercises, some of them quite edgy, Mm. uh, but that were all focused on recognising that if you are mindful in the way in which you connect with your own body and with your own self and then with others, you can create mood, you can create environment, you can create participation, And you can create this awareness that we're talking about. So Daniel's session was wildly interactive. We hardly ever sat down in that session. So there was lots of moving around, lots of becoming aware of breath and the body, becoming aware of how if you're focusing on something internally in the way that you connect with another person, it changes the way you connect with another person. So really experiential and interactive. We then had Tom, who took us through a seminar, a presentation, if you like, on beyond gamification. So he's an expert in the world of gamification, a real expert. 
And he introduced me. I don't know how many other people in the room didn't know about the theory of fun. I didn't Mm. know fun had a theory. (laughs) So the theory of fun, and that was great fun. And seeing how fun enhances learning. And I think I really did get a sense of how we can get trapped as facilitators into one way of doing things and attach to our way of doing things. And the theory of fun invites you to look at it from a very different angle and therefore create a very different and very engaging experience for people. Then we had Vibka. She was next. And she's a graphic facilitator. I mean, she's a facilitator of other kinds of processes as well. But she's developed in her career a a field of expertise on graphic facilitation. And her session was such a phenomenal example. Mm. And we've been getting feedback from the participants today, haven't we, on the quality of preparation. Mm. She came into that session with so much material already thought about in advance, uh, tools that we could use in order to engage in what she was sharing with us. And again, a very engaging session where people had to get up, they had to do things, they had Mm. to try things out. And a really shining example of how to create an environment in which people feel encouraged to play. Mm. And I really loved the way she shared her own personal story about being told by an expert, her father, really early on in her life, that she couldn't draw. Mm. And how she had to get over that internalized assumption and how so many people in the room got over that Mm. a little bit Mm. in the session that she did, really shifted. And of course... Graphic harvesting and graphic facilitation is such a phenomenal tool for Mm. us to develop as facilitators. Then after that, we had Alexander, who took us through a very engaging conversation on what lessons we can learn from the far right and the far left, and talking about this phenomenal issue of tolerance and a huge liberal value, tolerance, but how tolerant are we actually towards intolerance and how tricky that is because intolerant behaviour brings out your own intolerance, doesn't it? So I I felt that the session he did was enormously thought-provoking and then... Constantine. Constantine. And maybe you could say a little bit about what... Constantine shared with the group and the way in which he did it. I know he didn't have very much time with us. Yeah, we were so lucky to see him uh, in the Bundestag. Uh, so Constantine is a young member of parliament. Some of you may know him as the um, president or the chair of the Yulis. Um, and he's just recently transitioned, well, relatively recently, into this member of parliament role. So he was a phenomenal resource to just speak a little bit about, kind of more specifically, the situation in Germany. Um, and what ways the Yulis use to engage people, to bring people together, to make their events uh, participatory and interesting and relevant. Um, and now also from a party perspective, um, what he's noticed kind of an organizational level in, in party politics. Um, so I felt like that last day of the seminar really gave the political container also, because that is the context for most of the work that's being done um, by the participants in the room is they're they're having to do this work of people development in a political context, which sometimes can be tricky and challenging and with its own um, little things to take into account. So both Alexander and Constantine, I really, I think, supported 
um, participants to think about, okay, so what is this context? What does it ask of us? How do we apply the learnings around facilitation and people development in that particular field? So there's a few um, people, I hope, listening out there and wondering, um, what can I take out of this conversation? Um, what learnings, having not attended the seminar, is there for me to use um, in my own organization um, in order to get people to think better together, to meet better together, to have interesting, fascinating, engaging, relating events? Um, have you, Trisha, got any tips stories or pieces of advice that you can share um, that you think may be relevant for people to take note of? Well, I'm going to start at the end with that question. And the reason I'm going to start at the end is because it's the last session that we've just done with the participants, which they're now going away and applying and coming up with something which they're going to come back and share with us. And that is the, the skill of preparation and I think the reason why I want to start there is because it's something that I've learned so much about from you in fact <laughs> and how preparation is the thing that gives us the solid ground on which to stand when we are guiding a group of people through some kind of facilitated learning journey some kind of experience and how essential that it is and how overlooked it can be and I loved this point that you made just before we sent them off on the lunch break which is that having your program worked out is not the same as being prepared just because you've thought about the program and what you want to cover in your program doesn't mean you're prepared and how broad a topic preparation is mm. and then I think if you take the topic of preparation and you link it all the way back to the start of our seminar and this point that you made earlier about doing and being, how real preparation includes both. Mm -hmm. So that if you're really preparing, yes, of course, you are looking at where are we starting? What am I going to ask them to do next? Once they've done that, what are they going to do after that? After that's over, where do they need to go next in order to do what? And of course, we do have to be thinking about all of those links in order to come up with our programme but also using something like the 10 components of a thinking environment to think about what's this experience going to be like for people and how am I going to support people to be engaged? How am I going to create an experience for people where they experience being equal, even if they don't know as much about the topic as some other people in the room? How can I create an experience of equality how can I create an experience of ease and time to think? Again, going back to Vivka and her mm. graphic facilitation, so many people said that what stood out for them more than anything was the environment of ease that she created. Mm. So I think my big tip to facilitators is, yes, you have to think about what you want people to do, and you have to script that, and you have to prepare for that, and you have to think about all the bits and pieces that you're going to need in terms of materials and the room space and uh, technology and whatever else you might need in order to support them to do it. But actually, I can't remember who it was that said this. I think it might have been Maya Angelou. She said something like, people will forget what you told them. They'll forget 
what they did when they were with you, but they will never forget how you made them feel. And I think that's, I guess, a really big tip for me mm. is so much is available on the internet, isn't it, in the way of tips, techniques, mm. templates that you can use for facilitation. And, and it's not to say that those aren't absolutely essential and important and helpful because they help you to prepare mm. your process to be seamless but that you don't lose sight of what are you doing for yourself to support yourself to be able to be present mm. when you're with participants and what are you going to do for the participants to support them to be present mm. what would you add I think the only thing I would add is a word that you've used a few times now, and that's this word experience. Um, and I think it's it's such a trend in the world, and yet it is something we as humans have been craving for ever. Um, so we are creatures of experience. And somehow we've, I think in recent years, um, somehow have taken this thing that's available to us to give people an experience out of the realm of learning and development. Mm. Um, and there's a real opportunity, I feel, to, to bring it back into our seminars, our workshops, um, and our events. So instead of telling people about something, to design something where they really get to feel something or experience something. It's something we talk about often when we, when we speak about gaining votes as liberals. We say we've got to connect with people's hearts and emotions. Um, and the same goes for learning and development. Um, so I'm not so sure PowerPoints often, <laughs> unless they have really great visuals, uh, give people an experience. Um, and I was reminded as you were as you were thinking, Trisha, of this moment I had in South Africa at the Apartheid Museum. So some of you may know this system of racial segregation in South Africa's past. And up until today, when you visit the Apartheid Museum and you buy your entrance ticket, your entrance ticket classifies you according to race, but randomly. Um, and based on what is on your ticket, um, you will go through a separate in entrance. So some people will go through the white entrance of the museum and others will go through the black entrance of the museum. And that is an experience. Yes. That's not the same as to put on a PowerPoint for people, oh, this was apartheid and there were two entrances to the museum. So for me, really, the question is, how do we do that more? And, and how do we venture beyond just the context of politics um, and find experiences elsewhere that also applies to us. I think it's everywhere. One of the great conversations we had at the seminar um, was about rituals and practices. And there are countries around the world where this is so rooted in, in who they are culturally. I feel there's a lot that we can take from that, um, whether it is in the spaces we meet or eat or have fun or in nature um, and I'd like to encourage people who are thinking about having sessions to, to find inspiration there and to bring that back into the classroom. Hmm. One other tip I'd like to add is from our learning cycle model that we shared mm. with our participants, uh, adult learning cycle model designed by a man called David Kolb, K-O-L-B, easy to find on the internet, and it speaks to this idea of experience, doesn't it? Because he talks about, you have to think about what idea, concept, theory, model, input 
you want the participants to engage with. Mm. Then you have to think about how to create an opportunity for them to experiment Mm -hmm. with what you've said. Mm. And experimentation requires a certain kind of environment, doesn't it? It requires a safety environment. It requires an environment where trying things out, just stepping into the Mm. ring, having some skin in the game is the point, not getting it right, not having the right answer, but just giving it a go. And how the minute people give it a go, like you were saying, the minute you walk through one or other of those doors, you have an experience. Mm -hmm. And it isn't until you give it a go that you're going to get the experience. So we need to create these experimental places and spaces in our seminars and workshops so that people can give it a go and have an experience. And then how essential it is for our sessions to include an opportunity for people to then reflect on that. Mm. Because it's when people reflect on experience that they make meaning of what you originally presented to them for themselves. And then it becomes internalised and then they take it away Mm. and then they can put it into practice. Mm. So I think that's our conversation for today. Um, Unless you have anything else you'd like to add. Let me just think whether there's anything we want to... Well, I think maybe the note that I would like to end on, having said that I've been doing this for 30, 31 years, lost count, is how much I am still learning Mm. over and over again, how much I've learned in the last 12 days, how much I've seen how easy it is to preach one thing Mm. but then not practice it Mm. in the way you actually do the thing. So like when we went to Berlin and all the sessions took place in one venue space, which was a very traditional venue space. Mm. So how easy it is to fall into those traps and therefore how we have to stay open to learning as facilitators ourselves. So we're not just creating learning experiences for others. We need to stay being a learner ourselves all the way through. Absolutely. I agree. This way of being, of being a learner and really embodying that and um, in the moods context, stepping into a mood of curiosity about what could be. So thank you, Trisha. Thank you, Marika. Thanks. Um, And thank you for listening.